Welcome to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden, primary care physician and acute care hospitalist at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis, where we cover the latest in health, healthcare, and what matters to you. And now, here's our host, Dr. David Hilden. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. David Hilden, and welcome to episode six of our show. Perhaps we've all heard of inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome and the many diseases that are associated with your intestines. So today, we're going to get a better look at intestinal conditions with my colleague, Dr. Jake Matlock. Jake is a GI specialist. That means he's a gastroenterologist and uh, someone who's been on the show a few times now. So, Jake, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. Let's break it down a bit. What is it? Inflammatory bowel disease is a broad term for a chronic inflammation in the intestinal tract. There are several different kinds, and and it can be classified in different ways depending on how uh, much inflammation there is and what part of the intestinal tract is affected. Is that the same as colitis or enteritis or gastroenteritis? So the terms that you're using, colitis, enteritis, gastroenteritis, are general terms meaning inflammation of the colon or the intestinal tract or the stomach. So those are broader terms than IBD. IBD is a specific diagnosis of a chronic inflammatory condition, usually felt to be autoimmune in origin, so related to one's own immune system uh, going after a segment of your intestinal tract and causing inflammation. A lot of listeners are probably, they probably know that the itises are inflammation of whatever you've got in your body. <laughs> if it's got an itis, it's got an inflammation. So IBD is a specific group of diseases of the two biggies, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Break them down, please. Yeah. So Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are, as you said, the two uh, types of inflammatory bowel disease. The biggest difference between the two is what segments of the intestinal tract are affected. In ulcerative colitis, only the colon, or the last six or so feet of the intestinal tract, are involved. Typically, the inflammation is more superficial. Uh, that doesn't mean it's less severe, but it is more superficial uh, on the intestinal wall. Whereas in Crohn's disease, you can have not only the colon involved, but actually any part of the intestinal tract, from all the way from the lips to the other end. And the inflammation in Crohn's disease is also deeper. It goes deeper into the wall of the intestinal tract, and that can lead to different uh, and sometimes more severe complications. In a, just a few minutes, we're going to get more into how you diagnose these and what symptoms people might be having of these two types of inflammatory bowel disease. Before we do that, though, irritable bowel syndrome is something that people often in my own practice, get a little bit sometimes confused with IBD. So we have IBD and IBS, and they're very close. But could you tell us what is the difference between inflammatory bowel and irritable bowel? Well, I think that's a really important distinction, Dave, because it is confusing, and I think we contribute to that confusion because we've we've got these names that are so close together. IBS and IBD sound almost the same if you say them fast enough. In irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, the intestinal tract itself is not inflamed if you look at it under a microscope. So if you take biopsies, put, in, put those biopsies under a microscope, the intestinal tract looks normal. What is believed to be at least partially responsible for the symptoms associated with irritable bowel syndrome is a problem with the communication or signaling from the nervous system that innervates the intestinal tract 
and its communication with the brain. So if you were to look at a patient's intestines with irritable bowel, it would look normal? That is correct. That is actually one of the hallmarks of irritable bowel syndrome is that the intestinal tract itself is structurally normal and that there is not inflammation in the lining of the intestinal tract. So to all of you who might be experiencing irritable bowel or have a friend who is or a family member or are simply looking for more information about IBS, we've got you covered. We'll do it in a later episode. I'm going to say that at the top of this episode because I want to focus on the inflammatory ones, but we'll get uh, either Dr. Matlock or one of his colleagues back for a future episode about irritable bowel. So stay tuned for that. Let's dive deeper now into inflammatory bowel. Crohn's disease. First of all, how common is it? So the current estimates are that Crohn's disease affects between one and 300 people per 100,000 in the population. That's kind of a hard number to wrap your head around, but what that means is that there's somewhere between one and one and a half million people with Crohn's disease in the United States. It's a lot. Yeah, it's more common than people realize. Tell me about what their lived experience is like. What, What are people with Crohn's experiencing? So there's a broad spectrum of, of symptoms that can uh, be associated with Crohn's and a very variable natural history for the disease, meaning it can be very mild uh, with uh, occasional abdominal discomfort and diarrhea. It can also be very severe with uh, the development of abscesses, perforations, fistulas, anemia and bleeding, it can be really a life-altering disease if it's uh, at the severe end of the spectrum. What's a fistula? I apologize. Yeah, I should have been more clear about no, that. No, I know <laughs> what it is, but I'm going to have you explain this one because um, in all honesty, it is, is one of the complications of Crohn's that you're trying to avoid. Yeah. A, a fistula is the medical term for a connection between two hollow things that shouldn't be connected. So if you have a, a piece of your intestinal tract that somehow... Uh, attaches itself to and develops a communication with something else, even another part of your intestinal tract or your urinary bladder or your skin, uh, that would be classified as a fistula. Holes where they shouldn't be. I like that. When two hollow things are connected that shouldn't be. Yeah, that's it. And it is one of the complications of Crohn's disease. So people have intestinal problems living with Crohn's. What causes it? The short answer is that it's it's probably from a mistake by your immune system. And to put it very simply, your immune system's job, as I think most of us understand, is to fight off infections. The first thing that your immune system has to do is distinguish between self and non-self. It's got to be able to tell the difference between what's you and what's not you so that it can leave the things that are you alone and go after the things that are not you. In Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or indeed any autoimmune disorder, there's a mistake at that first step. And the immune system looks at something that is self, determines that it is not self, and goes after it. And and that kicks in the inflammatory response of the immune system, uh, and and we're off to the races. And hence, that's why it's called inflammatory bowel disease, because your own immune system, in this case, is attacking your own intestinal tract. That's correct. Specifically, what kind of symptoms do people have? So with Crohn's, the most common symptom that people will present with is abdominal pain. And Dave, as you know, abdominal pain can be from a multitude of causes. Yeah, that list of possibilities is dozens of things long, eh? Yeah, and, but, but that is the most common thing that we see uh, uh, as a, an initial symptoms with Crohn's disease is abdominal pain. Sometimes diarrhea, depending on what segment of the intestinal tract is affected by Crohn's disease. 
uh, but it is usually uh, also painful. Equally present for all ages, or do we see it in younger, middle age, older adults? Typically, people first present uh, when they are younger. Uh, so it, we do see it in pediatric populations. Uh, we'll often see it uh, presenting in people in their 20s and sometimes their 30s. The middle decades of life are uh, a relative quiescent period for initial presentations with Crohn's disease. So if, you, if you're going to get it, you're likely to get it before you're in your 40s or 50s. It does seem that there's a second smaller uh, uh, bump in presentation in the later decades of life, um, uh, though that, that bump is much smaller. So it, it is a disease that, that presents in young people. And you said it's belly pain is the most common thing, abdominal pain. But you also said it can be all the way up in your mouth or your esophagus or your, your stomach for that matter. Why belly pain? Well, I, I should say that the involvement of the upstream part of your intestinal tract, so mouth or, or swallowing tube, esophagus or stomach, are very uncommon. So they, they do happen, but, but to have those things be the first symptom of Crohn's disease is, uh, I would say, vanishingly rare. Uh, so typically it does start farther down in the intestinal tract in the abdominal cavity. When should somebody seek attention? I guess that's a little backhand way to say, how is it diagnosed? I, I think it's important to remember that all of us get stomach aches. Every single one of us right, gets like stomach Right, like 100% aches. of listeners are going, well, I got a, I got a stomach ache. Yeah, and, and that, that's going to happen to all of us. And, and I think that, that it is worthwhile to get an opinion from your provider. If you have stomach pain that's not going away in a matter of you know, a few days to a week, uh, or if it's different from something that you've experienced previously in your life. Most of us know what, it, what our stomach aches feel like. Most of us know what we feel like when we get a stomach bug and, and you know, get diarrhea or nausea or vomiting uh, with some pain associated with that. Uh, so if it feels different to you or if it's lasting longer than it's lasted in the past, you should probably get that attended to. Family connections? There is a family association with inflammatory bowel disease. So if you have a first-degree relative with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, it, it uh, raises your risk by a factor of about two or three. So it's a pretty substantial uh, increase in risk. Yeah, that's significant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, it's still a relatively uncommon thing. It's not the case that you've got a 50 or 60% chance. It's still less than 10%. So, Jake, is Crohn's uh, equally prevalent around the world, or do some countries and populations get it more often? It does seem that it affects some populations more commonly than others. Uh, there is a theory that has been proposed, loosely referred to as the hygiene hypothesis, which is that as countries go through industrialization and public health measures to make their environment uh, more clean and less beset by uh, infectious problems that uh, they are more likely to experience autoimmune disorders of all sorts, including Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. That's fascinating. I remember a guy in med school, he, did, he was always loath to wash his hands. Don't worry, uh, I don't think he's practicing anywhere, anybody, but, but he didn't want to wash his hands because he said, well, I'm going to challenge my immune system. Now, maybe he took it in a different direction, but that is a thing, um, uh, is to challenge your immune system. Like, like John Sweet said on this podcast, he's an allergist, and he was among the allergy people who said, yeah, let your kids eat dirt. So, you know... <laughs> <laughs> the hygiene hypothesis is real. So when they go, people go into the doctor, how do you diagnose this? So typically what we look for initially when we're trying to diagnose either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis is some objective evidence that there's inflammation in the intestinal tract. And 
to try to localize that inflammation if it is present. So usually that will involve either looking in their intestinal tract, typically with a colonoscopy, or doing an imaging study, uh, either a CT scan or an MRI, uh, which are both superior to colonoscopy for looking at the small intestine. So often those those two things, an imaging test and a colonoscopy, are done together um, to try to get a good view of the entire intestinal tract. People maybe don't realize that, but your scopes, as scarily long as they are, don't get all the way up into the small intestine, do they? They don't, or at least not very far into the small intestine. So with a, with a colonoscopy, uh, if we are um, particularly aggressive about it, we can get you know, a foot or, or thereabouts into the small intestine coming uh, as it connects into the colon. And if we look from above, uh, we can get, you know, a foot or so beyond the stomach if, if there's a compelling reason to do so. But because of our limitations in, in the length of the scope and our ability to push into the small intestine, looking at the small intestine itself is is typically better done with a non-invasive imaging study. Occasionally, if we see something on a non-invasive imaging study or if our level of suspicion is so high and the non-invasive imaging study is not giving us an answer. Like an MRI. Like an MRI. um, If that's not giving us an answer, but we're really, really suspicious, occasionally we will do something called a capsule endoscopy, which is uh, commonly referred to as a pill cam. Um, You swallow the camera. Yeah, you swallow a pill. It's got a little camera on it and it it travels through your intestinal tract and takes pictures and sends them to a little receiver that you wear on your belt. Because your small intestines is a wee bit longer than people might realize. How long is it? Yeah, your small intestine is somewhere between 15 and 20 feet long. And that pill camera makes it all the way through. It does, just like your food. Same thing that uh, propels your food through, propels the the pill through. So we we need to make sure your small intestine is empty so that we can see the, the walls with the camera. Right, but, right. But uh, it'll just tumble through and, and it takes about 50,000 pictures on its journey and then some poor slob named Jake gets to watch you get those to look pictures. At, <laughs> I was wondering, who gets to look at 50,000 pictures of the inside of somebody's intestine? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not one of the more exciting parts of my job. <laughs> Before I leave Crohn's disease, what kind of treatments are available for people? So the treatments have actually uh, are one of the success stories in, in at least in the course of my career in medicine, I had nothing to do with this success, but but we've seen a, a, an explosion of treatment options in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis in the last 15 to 20 years. In the olden days, uh, we would use steroids like prednisone and anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, the most common of those is a drug called mesalamine. And those were I would say disappointing in in terms of how effective they were in treating the disease and with regard to prednisone, disappointing uh, in terms of the side effects Lots that it produced. You say the olden days, that was literally when you and I were training. Yes, I am sorry, sorry to break this to you, Dave, but we, we are getting we're older. Now, <laughs> we're getting older, Jake. Um, I, now, now, though, in the modern era, uh, we have drugs that directly target specific aspects of the immune system's response and break the cycle of inflammation. 
Uh, there's actually a whole host of them now that are out there that can specifically target the steps in the immune system response that promulgate the inflammation in the, in the intestinal tract. It's one of those things in medicine that is a true success story. These biologic medications, which people probably unfortunately are inundated with on the TV, but they are effective for the right patients with the with the right diagnosis. Yeah, in the, in the in the appropriate setting, they are truly miraculous uh, medications. Okay, I think we've earned a break. We've tackled Crohn's disease, and when we come back, we're going to compare it to its other inflammatory bowel disease cousin, ulcerative colitis. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When Hennepin Healthcare says we're here for life, they mean here for you, your life, and all that it brings. Hennepin Healthcare has a hospital, HCMC, and a network of clinics both downtown and across the West Metro. They provide all the primary care and specialty care you would expect to find. But did you know they also have services like acupuncture and chiropractic care? Available at many of their primary care clinics and at their integrative health clinic in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more at HennepinHealthcare.org. Hennepin Healthcare is here for you and here for life. And we're back talking to Dr. Jake Matlock about inflammatory bowel disease. And we're going to get to ulcerative colitis. But Jake, before we do, I have to revisit the video capsule business you were talking about earlier because I have questions. So, a lot of people do, Dave. Uh, so you swallow this thing and what happens to it? I mean, a lot of people are probably saying like, well, seriously, what happens to the thing? So just to be clear, the, the pill itself is the size of a large medication pill. It has a camera, a light source, a battery, and a radio transmitter. When you swallow it, it does the same thing that your food does. It travels through your intestinal tract. The difference being that it will take two pictures every second until the battery dies, which is usually 8 to 12 hours later. So it will give us a, a movie, basically, that we can compile of the journey through your intestinal tract. Most of the time, um, the uh, pictures of your small intestine uh, cover about two to four hours of that movie. The rest of the movie is not very valuable. The light source is not bright enough, and the camera uh, focus is not good enough to see things far away, like the walls of the stomach are just, the stomach is too big a room to take good pictures. The colon similarly is is a large room, and so if you've got just a small light, you're not going to see the walls very well. But the small intestine, has a, as its name implies, has a fairly small caliber, fairly small diameter, and so we can see the walls pretty well with this capsule. So does it keep taking pictures until you uh, until it ends up in the toilet? Yeah, it keeps taking pictures until the battery dies no matter where it is. Uh, it, it, now, those pictures will only transmit to the receiver within a, a range of a few feet. So if, if it passes into the toilet and you walk out of the bathroom, uh, we are not going to get pictures of your plumbing. Well, your house is plumbing. Um, <laughs> I thought the whole point was to get pictures <laughs> of your plumbing. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it does keep taking pictures uh, the entire time. And then I got to ask you, what do you do with it? Do you do you give it back? Do you reach into the toilet? I and mean, this is sounding maybe more than people want to know, but what do you do with it? We always try to be very clear with people. We do not want the pill back. <laughs> um, so uh, most people actually don't even see it pass. Uh, there, there is uh, stool in the colon most of the time. And, and the pill gets mixed in with the stool and they don't even see it. So It's like the Mars rover. They send the thing off there, sends pictures until it dies, and we never see it again. This is hard-hitting stuff that people 
people want to know, Jake. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's a little-known aspect of my job. Yeah, good grief. Okay, let's move on to ulcerative colitis. It's similar to Crohn's, but a little different. Explain it, if you would, please. So ulcerative colitis affects only the colon. So only the large intestine or last five or six feet of your intestinal tract are affected in ulcerative colitis. It tends to be a more superficial inflammation, um, but again, I don't want to imply that that more superficial inflammation means it's less severe. The symptoms that are typically seen with ulcerative colitis are bleeding, diarrhea, urgency to have a bowel movement, sometimes pain, although pain is less of a common concern in ulcerative colitis than in Crohn's disease. It, it, it does happen, but it, it's typically the diarrhea and bleeding that, that bring people in. Why is it even considered a second type of inflammatory bowel disease? Just simply because of the location? Is that pretty much it? Or is it caused by something different? It's the location. The depth of invasion also is important. Yeah. Uh, you know, As we were talking about before with Crohn's disease, you worry about the formation of abscesses and fistulas, meaning, meaning inflammation that spreads all the way through the walls to start creating problems outside the walls or in things that are adjacent to the intestinal tract. Because the inflammation in ulcerative colitis is less deep, in the walls, you don't see those problems with ulcerative colitis. And we talked about some treatments, including medication treatments for, for Crohn's disease, uh, and many of them are similar for ulcerative colitis. But could you talk briefly about surgery? Is that needed? Uh, that is the thing that we're trying very hard to avoid in both conditions. And um, the the types of surgeries involved, uh, if, if a person does need surgery, are different. So in Crohn's disease, for example, uh, surgeries are reserved for the management of specific complications of the disease. So if you get an abscess, uh, antibiotics may not successfully treat that abscess. And so you may, may need an intervention or a procedure to drain it. Similarly, if you have an abnormal connection between two things that shouldn't be connected, Occasionally, medications will cause those connections to close or those fistulas to close, but if not, it sometimes is necessary to have surgery for that. In ulcerative colitis, uh, really the only indication that we have for surgery is inflammation that we simply can't control with medication. And in ulcerative colitis, for better or for worse, the only surgical solution is to remove the entire colon, which is a very large that's operation. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. What about the risk of other complications such as cancer? So that's an excellent question, Dave. Any chronic inflammation of the colon can, over a long period of time, increase a person's risk of cancer. So if a person has ulcerative colitis or if they have Crohn's that specifically involves their colon, after about eight years of that uh, inflammation, we start to see an increase in the risk of colon cancer in those people. And so typically, if a person has had ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease involving their colon, and they've had that disease for at least eight years, we do recommend that they have screening for colon cancer on a much more frequent basis, usually every one to two years. All right. We've covered Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, the basics. Let's get into a few different questions about these, if you could. Could somebody have both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's? So technically, no. Uh, if someone has inflammation in their colon, when we first meet them and first detect that inflammation, we may be uncertain about whether that is ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease that just happens to be limited 
to the colon. And, and in those circumstances, what we will often say is that they have what's called undifferentiated colitis. Undifferentiated me- makes it sound like the disease hasn't made a decision. What it actually is is that we haven't made a decision or we haven't figured it out yet. Fortunately, in undifferentiated colitis, the treatments are largely the same. Uh, the treatment options are largely the same. And by following someone over time and seeing what happens with the disease process, we can often make a determination of whether it is, in fact, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Let's talk about what the future might hold. Uh, let's start with transplant. Is there ever a, a situation where organs get transplanted? So I, I think when you're talking about the intestinal tract and you use, you use the word transplant, you have to be careful to distinguish between organ transplant, as you as mm-hmm. you as you specified, and stool transplant or fecal transplant. Good distinction. So there's no organ transplants. I take it there there is not an organ transplant option for uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, there has been some edge therapy uh, using stool transplant for um, inflammatory bowel disease. So I, I want to be careful to make it clear that this is something that is not in general use. It is it is typically done as part of a research protocol and only in cases where more traditional therapies have failed. A stool transplant is kind of what it sounds like. You take the actual stool or an isolate of stool from a healthy person and somehow get it into the intestinal tract of somebody with with whatever condition you're trying to treat. And how you get it there varies. Uh, We used to do it by doing a colonoscopy and just spraying Spraying it it in. And now there are are concentrates on the market that that come in a pill form, again, only available through research protocols that can be used and just swallowed uh, as, as much of an ick factor as that is. It, it is just a pill. Why would that work? I mean, I know it's, it's relatively cutting edge and, and, and there's biologic medications that are highly effective for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Why would it even work at all if it's an autoimmune problem? It's an immune problem and an inflammatory problem, whereas a stool transplant is giving you the microbiome of somebody else. Well, the theory, at least as I understand it, and again, this is fairly on the edge of our understanding, but as I understand it, the the theory is that if you have some component of your microbiome, the creatures that live inside of all of us, that look similar enough to you, to self, to allow your immune system to mistake you for those things, then your immune system may make the mistake and in, in, in trying to go after what it, whatever it is that's a part of your microbiome, it may go after you instead. And by getting rid of that, whatever that mysterious thing is, by replacing it with someone else's microbiome, you, you may get benefit. If it sounds like I'm hand-waving, it's because I am. Because you are. Because yeah. uh, yeah. we, we don't really understand how that works. What about diet or other non-pharmacologic treatments? So that's something that, that people will often ask about, and people are often given a lot of advice about diet by their providers mm. if they have inflammatory bowel disease. What I would say is that, that the goal with treatment of inflammatory bowel disease is to get the inflammation under, your, under control so that you don't have to worry about your diet. As far as we know, there are not aspects of your diet that specifically drive the inflammation in inflammatory bowel disease. Now, I would emphasize as far as we know, because you know, there's obviously a lot of research and inquiry going on into trying to figure out whether that's true or not. But in general, if your inflammatory bowel disease is well controlled, you should be able to eat whatever you want. 
it is the case that it, when it's not well controlled, there will be foods that produce more symptoms than others. Now, it's not that those foods are making the disease worse. It's that the disease makes you more able to detect symptoms that those foods are going to cause. We've been talking with Dr. Jake Matlock. He's a gastroenterologist at Hennepin Healthcare. We've been talking about inflammatory bowel disease. Before I let you go, Jake, what three tips would you like people to know about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis? The first thing I would say is if you have stomach symptoms that you can't explain or are worried about, I would talk to your primary care provider before you talk to Google. Uh, If you get on Google, you're going to find a lot of really frightening stories, and most of them aren't going to be relevant to you. The second thing I would say is that if you are diagnosed with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, don't panic. Uh, Again, if you get on the internet and you start looking for stories about Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, you're going to see the worst end of the spectrum. And there is a broad spectrum of, of natural history for both conditions, and most people do quite well. The third thing I would say is that if you have either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, stay engaged with healthcare and and continue to see both your primary care provider and probably your specialty provider because our treatments are improving every year. They've gotten dramatically better in my career and I anticipate that they will continue to do so in the future. Great tips from Jake about inflammatory bowel disease. Thanks for being on the show, Jake. It's always fun, Dave. We've been talking with Dr. Jake Matlock, gastroenterologist at Hennepin Healthcare. I hope you've picked up some tips from this show. It's been a great episode and I hope you'll join us for our next show. And in the meantime, be healthy and be well. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. To find out more about the Healthy Matters Podcast or browse the archive, visit healthymatters.org. Got a question or a comment for the show? Email us at healthymatters at hcmed.org or call 612-873-TALK. There's also a link in the show notes. The Healthy Matters Podcast is made possible by Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and engineered and produced by John Lucas at Highball. Executive producers are Jonathan Comito and Christine Hill. Please remember, we can only give general medical advice during this program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your physician if you have a more serious or pressing health concern. Until next time, be healthy and be well.